Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Drea Letamendi, and you're listening to Optimist in Progress, a podcast that invites change leaders, innovators, and self-starters who inspire and fuel the practice of being optimistic. In this episode, Tom Johnston and I speak to guest Naomi Hallam. Naomi is the CEO of Million Dollar Vegan, a global nonprofit dedicated to educating people about the benefits of plant-based lifestyles. Naomi had worked in corporate marketing and event roles for 15 years before transitioning to a vegan lifestyle. She pivoted her career toward endeavors aimed at creating a better world for all through vegan advocacy. Naomi's worked for the Dean Ornish Reversal Program, the Animal Charity Evaluators, and Veganuary before joining MDV, helping usher it from a bold initiative to a nonprofit with massive reach. The popularity of plant-based lifestyles has become apparent in the West, evidenced by the emerging meat substitutions and the expansion of menus from fast food to high-end restaurants. On the one hand, it can be a class issue, a lifestyle co-opted and perpetuated by privileged folks who have actual choices surrounding food. That, and also in practice, plant-based eating can be humbling and showing us that what we do at the personal level can affect others, not only to lessen cruelty, but also to curb climate change, to lessen land degradation, and to minimize the displacement of indigenous peoples. I spent some time with Naomi and her global team some months back and was struck by their ability to find cohesion, compassion, and ability to form a family around their shared values and in the face of exposure to animal cruelty. Their org outreaches to over 20 countries. But this is more than just diet change. It's more than what we're eating. It's not all or nothing. It's how kindness impacts others. It's the idea that kindness can be taught, can be shared, and actually can be contagious. On the 22nd of April, we mark Earth Day, and this conversation couldn't be more fitting as we think about our impact on the planet. Yes, even the day-to-day microsteps and the way our mental and physical well-being is bound up with our connection to nature. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Naomi. Hello. 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 How are you? Very good. Thanks. Good. Naomi, welcome to Optimist in Progress. It's great to have you on the show. We're looking forward to this conversation today. Likewise, it's great to be here. We always start off with the same question, which is about optimism. Do you see yourself as an optimist? Does it shape the way that you view your world, the world? Does it come into your life at all? Uh, yeah, I mean, I I always say I'm a realist, but I'm also an optimist. Um, I believe that people are inherently good and um, that there's a lot of amazing things that we can bring to the world um, if we just kind of find a sense of purpose in our lives. Uh, so yeah, I think I, I, I am optimistic and I think it helps to be optimistic. Otherwise, I wouldn't you know be able to get out of bed in the morning. So I would just be thinking, well, what is all this for? But I do believe um, there's a brighter future ahead if we, if we all team together. Can you talk a little bit about your young years in particular, growing up on a farm in the UK, can you describe that landscape and, and help us see the connection between that early childhood and this connection or affinity with animals? How, how did that develop? Sure. Well, I didn't grow up on a farm, but I grew up um, uh, surrounded by farmers and farmlands in a very rural setting. Um, so we kind of had, you know, a sheep field that that backed up to the, you know, the, our backyard, and um, 
on my sort of walk to school, I would pass cows in fields and, um, you know, I would see uh, sheep all the time. And a lot of the animals we don't kind of see dotted around as much anymore because of factory farms, unfortunately. But um, I I loved animals from a very young age. Um, my grandmother had a lot of animals. She had ducks and chickens uh, and you know, they just gave me the most happiness. I couldn't wait to get home from school to kind of feed the animals or play with the animals or, you know, try and call the sheep over to the gate to see if it would let me touch it. You know, that was such a source of pleasure for me as a child. And, um, uh, you know, obviously dogs and cats too. Uh, but I think a lot of us don't get to connect with farm animals and I always did. So it was at a very young age when I kind of discovered that these animals were the same animals that I was eating. And it really didn't sit well with me from a very young age, maybe from as young as six or seven, I was quite distressed by this. Um, and so it was kind of around 10 years old that I just started adamantly refusing to eat anything that I had seen in a field, um, which was, which was most animals. Um, but yeah, I, I, uh, I loved them. Um, and I kind of have this idyllic memory of my childhood and in it, there are lots of farmed animals around me all the time. That's kind of my idyllic scene, if you will. That's beautiful. I'm getting the sense that there is a very kind of early connection, almost seeing eye to eye with the creatures yeah. and beings around you and, and realizing the destruction or the harm of, of then having them on your plate. Just just the <laughs> distinction of that. <laughs> Right. I was like, can we leave them in the field? They're so sweet. They're so pretty to look at. Um, they give me such joy. Why are we taking them out of the world when they're so beautiful in it? Um, what is the need? Um, I think as a young child, you know, my mom thought what most moms thought, which is that, well, we need to eat them. We need to eat them to be healthy. And uh, I think she still thought that <laughs> long after I went vegetarian and was quite worried about you know, if I'd grow properly, if I'd lose a lot of weight. And it was only when she saw me thriving, I think that she realized uh, that I might just might be okay just petting these animals rather than consuming them, which was, which was good. You know, as a 10 year old, you can't do much without the support of your parents. So I was lucky to get that support. And as you got older, can you talk a little bit about some of the resistance or the, the direct, you know, judgment that you encountered and, you know, kind of going back to the the building and shaping of optimism, how did, how did you self-preserve, right? It, this is a, a choice that, you know, in my experience, there is a lot of pushback. There's a lot of judgment. Mm. We have a very heavily meat-consuming culture uh, mm. across the globe. And so I'm just wondering, what were your first experiences with that resistance and, and how did you kind of build that resilience within you? Well, I think initially I was surprised um, that people found it kind of something that was kind of something they always wanted to joke about or mock or challenge me on, right? Um, even as a young child, people would um, uh, at school, you know, try and sneak a piece of meat onto my plate or kind of dangle it in front of me like, like it was really hard for me not to have it and they were kind of tempting me. Um, it's always been pretty easy decision for me. And I, and I appreciate that not everybody who gives up animal products finds it easy. Um, it was pretty easy for me because, uh, it really helped, um, me to live in a way that aligned with what I held dear, what my values were. 
Um, so it was a no-brainer for me. And I thought it was a kind of nice thing to do. You know, as a child, it was simply like, I want to be nice to these animals. I don't want to eat them. So usually when you do something that you consider to be nice or uh, grown out of kindness, you expect other people to kind of be like, wow, that's great. That's great that you're doing that. And that doesn't tend to be the reaction that you get from most people. And it's a belief system. It's it's my belief system. And we have a lot of respect nowadays for people's religious belief systems, um, but not so much for their lifestyle choices, particularly of veganism. Um, it seems to really great people. Um, but, you know, there was a time when people were not so accepting of p- different religions, right? You know, we haven't always been accepting of people's differences. So I, I like to think that veganism will become more accepted. Um, but I, I think people want to make a joke about it because it makes them maybe feel a bit uncomfortable. They think that I'm going to be judging them for eating animal products. Um, whereas certainly in my younger years, I didn't give any thought to what anyone else was doing. I just was thinking about what I wanted to do. So it really didn't matter to me what other people did. Um, and so I really couldn't understand where this kind of um, mocking uh, reaction was coming from. But uh, yeah, I, it wasn't until much later that I kind of understood maybe where that was coming from. We look at shifts a lot with Optimus. We have a non-alcoholic uh, drink and, and spirits and mm. default behaviours is something that we look at a lot. Quite often people will drink a glass of wine out of habit or because they feel like they have to, or same with a beer or a right. spirit. Um, being at a social event means you should have a cocktail in your hand if you want to show show everyone else that you really want to be there. And if you stand there with water, people <laughs> look like they, they think you're kind of half half the way out the door. Yeah. Um, I'd love to understand what drove you to do the work that you're doing with Million Dollar Vegan. And how did you decide that, yes, it was something that, it was important to you, but actually you wanted to take it to a bigger stage. You wanted to take it to talk about helping other people change their behavior too. Well, um, yeah, as I said before, like as a child, it was kind of, for me, it was a personal choice. Right. And then, um, as I got older, um, honestly, it wasn't until around my kind of late twenties, uh, that I started to learn about, um, the impact that consuming animals has or raising and slaughtering animals has on our planet, on our health, um, and also the scale of suffering involved in that industry. And that was something I hadn't really uh, learned about, uh, looked into. Um, And when I did, I actually suddenly went from thinking this is, you know, the way I eat is a personal choice to thinking it's not a personal choice. Nothing that any of us do is a personal choice if it impacts others and if it impacts the world around us. So, you know, a personal choice is if I choose to wear red rather than green. Um, But, you know, if I choose to go around kicking people's cars, (laughs) that's not a personal choice because somebody has to deal with um, the repercussions of my actions. So uh, I think that my first kind of foray into what, what our lifestyles do to others Uh, was when I watched a documentary called Cowspiracy, which is about the environmental impact of the meat and dairy industry. 
And uh, that just kind of sent me down a rabbit hole. Really, I, I was a bit mind blown that they weren't teaching us, you know, in school that animal agriculture is the second leading cause of climate change. And it's the number one cause of deforestation and habitat loss and species extinction. You know, I thought, well, this is this is pretty big stuff. Why, why have I not been aware of this? Why don't they teach you this in school? Why don't they tell you more about how much water you can save if you have a veggie burger rather than telling you to take less showers when, you know, the impact of having a veggie burger is the same as, you know, not showering for a year. Um, so I, I was just confused about this. And uh, so I thought, well, I'm going to have to explore a little bit more. Uh, and, and yeah, it was in exploring that I realized that um, we have immense power as consumers to make the world a better place by choosing to eat less or no animal products. And I thought if, you know, if more people knew this, maybe they would feel empowered to make better choices. Maybe they would feel less helpless when they read all these climate change reports. I know that's often how I felt in the past. You know, you see these reports on climate change talking about how we're going to have fishless oceans and crazy wildfires and melting icebergs and I think we think well what can we do as individuals we're a little bit helpless right we need governments to act we need our leaders to do something about it and I thought I wanted to show people empower them educate them as to what they can do how they can have a significant impact just by making simple lifestyle changes um, and I felt that if I could educate more people in the way that I've been educated that people would you know, feel less hopeless and more optimistic about their chances of creating a better future for themselves, for their children, for generations to come. So that was really why I decided one day, I don't feel like I'm living with purpose by working in my corporate job anymore. Mm. I feel like I have to uh, do something to empower others to make the world the place they want it to be. And, um, and I, don't think I'm going to feel happy unless I'm doing that. And that was kind of where my journey into educating people about the benefits of veganism began. I'd love to understand more. Maybe you've got a perspective on why this isn't taught in schools or why, you know, for years when people were becoming aware of climate change, it seemed like the biggest threat in the world, and yet people were told to switch off their lights and not leave the tap running. Right. Um, it was tiny, tiny adjustments that sh which de never seemed anywhere near the scale of the threat of climate change. <laughs> yeah. Yet there's really significant things that people can do, and the, the whole food system now is seen as you know, there's many areas of it for many different reasons that are huge, have a huge impact on the climate and, and on, the, on, the, on the world. What, what, why do you think that hasn't been part of the narrative for such a long time? Um, unfortunately, I think it's a question of greed. If something makes us a lot of money, then we don't want to stop having that income. Uh, big ag, uh, which is up there with you know big pharma. Um, big agriculture has a lot of money, makes a lot of money. Um, because of that, they're able to suppress information from the public by paying lobbyists to do so. They're able to get laws bent in their favor. Um, they're able to make it illegal to film what goes on inside of a factory farm. Uh, 
I mean, if, if I was to walk into the open door of a factory farm and film and photograph what I saw, I would be charged as a domestic terrorist. I would be seen as, you know, a criminal on par with somebody who might plant a bomb in a shopping mall. Um, it's that important to these corporations to hide from us the reality of what goes on and the impact that their industry has on the planet. Uh, because if people knew, as I've said before, if people knew, they, I believe a lot of them would wish to change their lifestyle habits. And if a lot of people change their lifestyle habits, particularly their dietary habits, then these corporations will make a lot less money. Um, the good thing is they then have a lot less power and a lot more of the truth would be exposed. But as it is, you know, they're one of the uh, richest forces on the planet. Um, and, uh, and we fund them and we enable them to be that. Um, and because of that, they can hide what they do very, very well, uh, you know, and as I've said, they, they do it so well that they can even keep the information from being taught in schools. Uh, this is not something that happens in Europe, but certainly in the US is that, you know, fast food chains um, and meat giants like Tyson uh, fund schools in return for having their products and their restaurants operate within those schools to serve burgers to the children. Um, so there's no way that a school is going to teach people about the detriments of eating meat um, when they're when they're funded by the meat industry. Uh, and the same occurs in hospitals in the US, unfortunately. It also occurs with organizations like um, the American Heart Association. Uh, I worked in a heart hospital for a couple of years. Um, I know that one of the leading causes of arterial blockages is um, a high amount of animal products in the diet because that's the only place cholesterol comes from. Uh, and yet the American Heart Association has beef and dairy-based recipes on their website. Why is that? Why are they recommending a food product that is causing heart disease? And if you look into it, that's because a, a large chunk of their funding comes from the meat industry. So there's a lot of corruption going on. Um, it's all based around money. It's about the meat industry paying to silence the people that can hurt them uh, and paying to keep information away from the consumers so that they keep funding them. So it's a dark world when you pull that curtain back and realize why it is that we're not getting taught what we should know. Let's talk a little bit about Million Dollar Vegan, especially in the context of this dark world that more and more... Um, hopefully more and more people are starting to realize and reckon with. How did this organization, which by the way, is a global organization that spans 10 countries, has community members and leaders who I've been lucky to meet just uh, actualizing these initiatives. And so I'm curious to hear, how did this get started? How did you get involved? And then, you know, what are the objectives of this organization? Well, what we wanted to set out to do was, was a couple of things. We wanted to hold world leaders accountable for a trailblazing change, okay? There's a lot of world leaders out there or influential people that talk about climate change, right? They talk about let's do what it takes to save our planet, to save our rainforests, uh, but they're not often willing to talk about or do the one thing that they can easily do that would have the greatest impact, and that's changing their diet. There's really no, there's no more impactful change that an individual can make, and that's not an opinion. That's been scientifically proven time and time again in the IPCC report and by environmental scientists that if you know that even if we get rid of fossil fuels, 
we still won't mitigate climate change to the percentage we need to. There's only one thing that is going to enable us to do that. And this is a global shift towards a plant-based diet. So we wanted to challenge our leaders to essentially put their money where their mouths are and lead by example in making that dietary shift towards a plant-based diet to hopefully inspire others to do the same. Um, and the challenge aspect of bringing a million dollars to the table is not just to incentivize the person we're asking to lead by example. It's also to try and generate mainstream media because what is severely lacking, um, particularly when it comes to educating people about the benefits of veganism, is mainstream coverage. Uh, a lot of vegans, unfortunately, live in a bubble where we're following all these other vegan accounts on social media and, and we're sharing information amongst ourselves and we're getting really excited about it. But we're not penetrating outside of that bubble. You know, the mainstream audiences um, that really will eat uh, animal products at every single meal and not even think about it, not think about where it comes from, not know where it comes from, not really think that it matters where it comes from. Right. How do we penetrate this? mainstream audience? How do we get our information out there? So that was kind of the inspiration. Let's do something big. Let's pull a big stunt that encourages a world leader to lead by example, and also gets the reason why we're asking that world leader to do this into the mainstream, into the public awareness. So when we launched and we challenged Pope Francis to go vegan for Lent, we did it uh, in conjunction with asking him to fight climate change through diet change. Uh, and when we generated huge amounts of media around the world, because we challenged the Pope, um, we were able to use that media to explain why and to educate people a little bit about the impact that our dietary choices have on the planet. And it's really amazing how these highly visible leaders and figures can really influence a large population of people. Uh, and mm -hmm. I, I'm also learning as well that there are these um, community level, grassroots level um, efforts that leverage social media, TikTok, um, Instagram. And I'm really inspired by those uh, change makers because they're utilizing the same, the, you know, the spirit of this idea, getting the word out, educating, informing, um, but also doing this at a level that's accessible to people where people can say, you know, oh, I, I, I relate to this person. I can, I can do this too. It's really mm -hmm. achievable for me. And I'm curious, kind of in pivoting to the last couple of years, I imagine that the pandemic has introduced some challenges in your efforts. I'm curious to hear how, you know, what were those challenges and how did you overcome them? Yeah. Um, the, I think we face the same challenge that uh, climate scientists are now facing, right? There's always something bigger going on in the news or what would seem to be bigger. Um, uh, you know, right now, I think I'm starting to see headlines that are saying, well, you know, there is a war going on in Ukraine, but we mustn't let it detract us from the fact that uh, climate change is still happening and we need to do something about it. Uh, not tomorrow, not next week, but now. Um, otherwise, we're going to be in serious trouble. Um, so this is kind of life, isn't it? That there's always things that deserve our attention, but th that detract from other problems that, that need our attention as well. So the pandemic meant that people were not really interested in talking about animal suffering. Um, they were very concerned with this virus and um, saving the, themselves and their loved ones from it. And that's completely understandable. 
what was really important to us was to explain to people, well, you know, this is a really important time to understand where these viruses come from. Um, three and four pandemics come from animals or animal products. Um, viruses mutate and jump from animals to humans when we keep them closely confined in dirty conditions. So, um, you know, the fact that this virus potentially came from a wet market is, is was not surprising to us. Um, at Million Dollar Vegan because we know how much of a risk animal agriculture poses to humanity when it comes to pandemic outbreaks. Um, throughout history, um, most of our infectious diseases have come from animals and animal products um, and not just talking about the recent ones like, you know, uh, swine flu and, and, and bird flu. Uh, we're talking about, um, you know, malaria and uh, HIV and um uh, a whole list of other ones, SARS, MERS, they're all kind of on our website. So we thought, well, let's try to educate people a little bit more about what their their current interest is, right? Uh, people don't seem to want to talk about climate change right now, and they don't want to talk about animal suffering, um, but they do want to talk about health, and they do want to talk about avoiding a future pandemic. So that's what we try to start educating people about, how they can take pandemics off the menu um, and significantly reduce the chance of this happening again by, by looking at where pandemics have historically come from and addressing that. Um, and then the second part of that was to, you know, also make people aware that the stronger our immune systems are, the healthier our bodies are, the better chance we have of fighting off this disease should we contract it. So we also were starting to educate people at that point about the benefits of a whole food plant-based diet and how that can really strengthen our immune system and leave us less susceptible to illness. So it was just a kind of a bit of a pivot on what we were educating people about, which aspect of a vegan lifestyle. Uh, and at the same time, you know, there was a lot of people suffering that we wanted to support through the pandemic. Um, and we decided to do that by pledging to donate a million plant-based meals to those in need around the world who were struggling or suffering because of the pandemic. And, and you know, that's what we did. It's really impressive. So uh, we're talking to you from Los Angeles, where veganism is something that most people either claim <laughs> or... <laughs> do for a phase maybe they watch something on netflix like what the health and then they they suddenly vegan and then yes. you know maybe, maybe that lasts for a couple of days or not but it's definitely a conversation it's in the it's in the it's on the shelves when you go into um into food stores it, there are restaurants dedicated to vegan eating and vegan lifestyle right there's there's a lot happening here there's even kind of clothes brands which are which are spawning that are, that are completely vegan in this vegan leather and it does show that the vegan trend is apparently about 3% of people in the US are, have adopted veganism and state that as their, their lifestyle. There's a whole host of celebrities which talk about it. The mayor of New York wrote a book yeah. about it. Eric Adams wrote a book about being vegan before he, he, he did anything to do with politics in terms of his publishing anyway. Um, there's amazing restaurants like Eleven Madison, which is also in New York. She's got three Michelin stars and has become right. vegan. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's, and there's huge investments into companies that are plant-based, whether it's oat milks or um, Beyond Meat or Impossible Foods. Those, those aisles in the, in the food stores are getting bigger. There's tons of investment going onto them. I'd be really interested to see kind of what your view is overall. Is this something that you can see being adopted 
um, more broadly? Is is it is it the beginning? Are there really positive signs, or do you see there's some real challenges ahead as people get a, a grip with the changes that you would need in your diet to become vegan? Well, I think overall it's really positive. I mean, I haven't eaten meat now for uh, like 28 years, so um, I've really noticed, uh, particularly in the last five years, a shift um, in in terms of what's available and where it's available. And as you say, you know, if you live in California, you're very, very lucky because it's a bit of a mecca for veganism. Um, there's vegan options everywhere. There's loads of vegan restaurants. There's a whole app dedicated to showing you where your nearest vegan restaurant is called Happy Cow. It's great. It's like looking up an Uber. They're everywhere now. You're always just two minutes away from a great vegan meal. Um, so yeah, in California, we're really, really lucky. Uh, but you know, Europe as well. I'm from the UK and uh, particularly over the last 10 years, uh, there's been a real increase in vegan options and vegan restaurants. So it really is easy there as well. And, and we're working in across Latin America and India and uh, the Middle East. And honestly, there's been, there's been a surge in veganism there too. Now, for a lot of the countries we work in, plant-based diets were predominantly what has always been eaten. In India in particular, yeah. you know, meat has never been a big part of the diet there. Dairy, yes, um, but meat, not so much. It's only actually in the last kind of 10, 15 years uh, with the westernization of these cultures um, that they've been consuming more animal products and more dairy and more fast food. And they've seen the decline in, in you know, in the nation's health. So in, in some cases, we're trying to to open people's eyes to how delicious plant-based food can be. And in other cases, we're trying to get people to recognize that there was nothing wrong with the diet that they had before and that this new westernized way of eating is not benefiting them. It's not benefiting mm. the planet. And it, it, we need to return to our, our roots. Yeah, kind of like cultural eating. Yeah. I, I think that's kind of really interesting. Yeah. Right. And, and I think a lot of the time, people think, well, if there's not a vegan restaurant or there's not a vegan burger lo close to me, I can't do it. Um, but we need to remember that, you know, the basis of, of being vegan or being plant-based is the fruits and vegetables and the whole food and the potatoes and the rice and the pasta and all of those good things we ate before everything came in a package. Um, and and if, if you remember that foundation uh, of, of what eating plant-based is, then you can make a vegan meal or find a vegan meal anywhere. Um, you know, you don't have to have meat on a plate for it to be a complete meal. And I think once we get that kind of fixed attitude out of our minds, it, it becomes easy, right? You know, I can say, well, I want a plate of all your freshest grilled vegetables and a really nice salad and a nice bowl of pasta with some olive oil and salt and pepper and, uh, you know, maybe a fried rice with mixed vegetables or something like that. Then you think, okay, uh, Actually, it's not that hard. I don't have to have tofu for it to be vegan. I don't have to have hummus on there. I don't have to have a veggie burger. Um, so, yeah, so I think if we remember that it's a return to an authentic way of eating then uh, that's about produce and, and, and things that aren't packaged, then it's easy to do. Uh, but you mentioned, you know, you mentioned Beyond and Impossible and, and those organizations, um, those companies are fantastic. They're fantastic for the movement because there are a lot of people uh, that live in food deserts um, and that don't have access to fresh produce, right? To healthy foods. Um, there are people that uh, can only afford uh, to eat fast food. And in those cases, you're giving them an affordable, convenient option, right? McDonald's now has the McPlant uh, burger, which I've tried and is fantastic. Cannot tell it from a regular, you know, quarter pounder. 
Um, Beyond uh, also have a chicken product that can be bought in KFC. Um, Burger King have the Beyond Whopper. Uh, Pete's Coffee has uh, Just Egg, which is a plant-based egg substitute, which is another fantastic product. So I think um, the fact that it's also something that is becoming affordable and convenient uh, and easy for people to switch from their, you know, regular burger to a plant-based burger is what's making it particularly accessible to people. Uh, it's, it's that convenient switch uh, that these big organizations are helping people to make. And that's, that's really important. And, you know, these companies, they're not confined to California. They spread across the US and they'll be spreading across Europe. Uh, some of them already are. And hopefully beyond that, um, I know beyond are looking to get into India and China sometime soon. Uh, and I think that convenient element of being able to go into McDonald's and get your regular meal, but not with any animal products in it, is, is going to be a game changer. While we were working together last year, I was so inspired by the resilience building that, uh, you know, that you carry within yourself, but also that you harness uh, among your team. And I got to know your team a little bit and realized that this work is very personal. A lot of um, a lot of the folks, and I think this is true of many companies and organizations and um, many people who we've had on the show have uh, highlighted the intersection of uh, maybe a personal passion or identity and and the work that they're exploring or pioneering. And mm. what I want to ask you about, you know, th- this uh, this field, this landscape has some hardships. Uh, it might involve um, becoming more aware of or observing some of the the traumatic things involved in, in the meat industry and in the dairy industry. And so I'm I'm wondering, given how long you've been doing this and how you're able to to bring hope and inspiration and honestly optimism in your team, you know, what have you learned from that and what can you share with others who are also leading teams uh, or groups of people and interested in how to just sustain that level of motivation and hope when we may encounter some setbacks or hardships. Yeah. I mean, it goes back to kind of being optimistic, trying to remain hopeful when you see a lot of darkness in the world, when you find out that so many people are trying to conspire to keep um, animal suffering hidden. Um, And when you realize on what scale animals are suffering and how needlessly it is when you realize that you don't need meat and dairy to be healthy. But there's, you know, there's suffering across the board in the world, isn't there? Every time we go online now or open a newspaper, there's some atrocity happening somewhere. And so I think in order to remain hopeful, what I certainly do and what I encourage my team to do is to focus on the positive, to focus on the people that are doing something. Uh, So, you know, if we look to Ukraine, what's happening there is absolutely devastating. And yet there's so many people on the ground that are trying to support Ukrainians on the border and inside the country by providing them with food relief and clothes and housing and and just uh, emotional support around the world. Uh, That's what I'm trying to focus on. um, uh, That gives me hope. And so, you know, when I have to look at an undercover video from a dairy farm or an egg farm. Um, it's, it's devastating to me. It keeps me up at night. I'm, uh, you know, it's, it takes everything I have not to get angry and ask why, why is, 
why is this being allowed to happen? Why does nobody care? Why isn't no one doing anything about it? But then I think, well, people are, there are people doing things about it. There's plenty of people working really, really hard in different ways to try to reduce the suffering that's in the world and, and create a brighter, more promising future for all of us. Um, you know, uh, I've just had a daughter and now more than ever, it matters to me that the world she grows up from is, is you know, a kind and compassionate place where every time we make a choice, we ask ourselves, is this choice hurting someone else? Is this choice impacting my beautiful planet? Can I make a better choice? And wanting to make that better choice, right? So um, I, I look at the people around me that are working to make her future better and there are so many of them and that number is growing every day. And often there are people that want to do good. They just don't know how, they just don't know that they can, they just don't know that they have the power. Even for me in the morning, I, I talk to my team and I feel, I feel more optimistic for doing that because I work with a group of beautiful people that will do anything and everything to make the world just a little bit a little bit better, right? A little bit kinder, even if it's just a drop in the ocean, they're, they're going to put that drop in there, you know, if it takes them their lives to do it. Um, and, and from people who are inventing better tasting veggie burgers to people that are educating a family member on the benefits of a plant-based diet, uh, to people that are, you know, picking up plastic bags on the beach or, or getting rid of straws. And, as long as everybody's doing what they can, and a lot of people are, you know, the, there's hope and I, and I focus on them and, and their actions. And, and that gives me hope as well. That kindness is so contagious. I, I know that mm. I benefited from your kindness and your team's kindness in uh, working with you and, and taking some time, some, some, I, I think some thoughtfulness around some of my choices and, and my lifestyle and making some, some, actually small changes that ended up being very, very significant. Um, so uh, what you just described is um, it, it is truly, truly real. It, it is real. I definitely need to acknowledge that this is this can be stressful work. You are a new mom, you're uh, you know running this this team and um, really occupying, pioneering a particular space. So how do you take care of yourself mentally and physically? Are there strategies that you're willing to share uh, with our audience around your self-care? Um, yeah. I mean, at work, we we kind of remind each other that we're family. We're all in this together and we, we can always speak our minds and share our problems. And I think we've created a safe space in which everyone feels comfortable to do that. I think it's important to each uh, admit that we're only human and that we all have bad days and we have, have days when we struggle to have hope or, you know, we get a bit despondent because we're not seeing the impact that we want to have. And I think that's okay. It's okay to feel uh, downtrodden and disheartened from time to time. Um, and we just need to talk about that and, and learn to accept that and, and accept that we're human and, uh, and take time to recharge. So I, you know, I always encourage others to do that. Uh, and I encourage myself to do it too, right? You can't take care of the world if you're not taking care of yourself. Um, simple ways that I do is to, you know, set aside an hour every day to walk with my dogs, to walk in nature, to breathe the fresh air and just kind of disconnect, leave my phone behind and uh, appreciate the beauty that is in the world. Um, because when you stare at a laptop all day, it's hard to see that beauty, right? Uh, you can actually just be there with blinkers on in a room and not even know what weather you had that day because you didn't look out the window. 
uh, I think it's important to appreciate that we're all alive and we're part of a beautiful world and, and you know, we can be in sync with that world or we can be against it and, and choose to kind of connect with the world and, and support it um, and be amongst it. That's awesome. Naomi, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really inspiring to hear your story and I think what you and the team are doing with Million Dollar Vegan is is inspiring to everyone. Um, before we go, uh, I'd love to hear two things. It'd be great to know where uh, that our listeners could find out more about you and your organization and, and what you're doing. And also leave us with some cultural inspiration, anything you've been listening to. Some people talk about, some people have music, some people have spoken word, um, but anything that you listen to that is inspiration. Uh, yeah, so... Um... Well, if people want to check us out, we're at milliondollarvegan.com. And we're also on all of the different social media pages, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Million Dollar Vegan. Um, and we're a very non-judgmental, supportive, um, optimistic organization. So wherever you're at in your journey, if you're right at the beginning, if you're somewhere in the middle, if you fell off a wagon recently, um, we're here to support. And we're not an all or nothing organization. You know, if you just want to switch up your diet a little bit, um, eat plant-based when you can. Uh, we're here to help you to do that. Um, and, you know, we provide free support, we provide uh, free guidance, and we provide free meal plans and recipes. So that's all on the website, and that's all available to anybody that wants it. Um, and then oh, inspiration. Um, I listen to a lot of music, um, classical music. I le- read a lot of books. I like to read fiction because it helps me escape from all of the education-based work that I do. Um, I've recently read uh, a book by Maria Duenas, who is an author from Spain. It's called The Time in Between. And um, it's about a uh, clothing designer who secretly works as a spy during the war by uh, sewing little messages into the seams of the dresses that she makes. Um, And it was just a nice book to escape to. And it's set in Spain and Morocco and the UK. Um, So I highly recommend that book for anybody that wants to um, go on a little adventure around Europe. Awesome. Well, Naomi, thank you so much for joining uh, us on Optimist in Progress today. It's really inspiring hearing what you're doing with Million Dollar Vegan and we look forward to staying in touch. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Optimist in Progress podcast brought to you by Optimist Drinks. This podcast is presented by Dr. Drea Lettermendi and me, Tom Johnston. It's produced and researched by Lisa Farr-Johnstone with original music from Reginald Science Perry and edited by Brian Ward and Aginia O'Dell. Email podcast at optimistdrinks.com with any questions or ideas and follow us at optimistdrinks on Instagram for updates on upcoming shows.